Let's stand together and open in our Bibles to Luke 7, verse 31. Luke 7, verse 31. If you need a Bible, be sure to lift up your hand and our ushers will get one to you. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're studying all the way through the Gospel of Luke, verse by verse, line by line, precept upon precept. And we find ourselves in Luke 7, verse 31. And I've entitled this message this morning, Wisdom is Justified by her children. Let's read as Luke writes, and he says this. And the Lord said, speaking of Jesus here, to what then shall I liken the men of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, saying, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned to you and you did not weep. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by all her children. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we glorify you this morning. That's ultimately why we have gathered, to give you glory, to give you praise, to worship you in a way that you deserve, Lord. And we're so thankful for all that you have given us and all that you've blessed us with. We can't say thank you enough, Lord. You've given us salvation. You've poured your grace out upon us every single day. You give us the gift of life and health. You give us sunshine and rain. And, oh, Lord, you are so good. We thank you, Lord, that we can come now in a country that is still free to worship you, to open your word, to have you speak to us through your word. And I pray that you would by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord. And Lord, we ask your blessing upon every church across this nation and around this globe that is preaching your word. And would your word go forth in power? Would it change lives? And may it have its full effect upon us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, in the previous two verses, prior to the text that we've read this morning, Luke told us this. He said, and when all the people heard him, that is Jesus, Even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So we see here clearly that there were many who heard and obeyed the message of John the Baptist. And that's why they rejoiced at the words of Jesus. Because Jesus, when he spoke, he endorsed John. He praised praised John the Baptist and he said, that he was a man of truth that went out in the wilderness and stood strong like a pillar, like a tower for truth, and that he was not moved by the opinion, the swaying opinion of mankind, that he was blessed by the Lord, that he preached the truth, that he was the greatest of even the prophets that had ever been born. And so when the people who had been baptized by John heard this, they glorified. They praised the Lord for this. Excellent. That validates that confirms the baptism of John, that it was right and that it was good. Now, John the Baptist, remember, called people to repent of their sins, and he warned people of the wrath to come, and he told people to bear fruit worthy of repentance. And then as a sign of their repentance, he called them to be baptized. So John's out there in the wilderness, Bethabara, east of Jerusalem, out in that desert there, And he's calling people to repentance. And as a sign of their repentance, they're coming to him. And they are being baptized in the Jordan River. That's what John the Baptist does. And that's why, in fact, we call him John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. 
He is baptizing people, calling them to do that as a sign of their repentance. But there's another side of the coin here. There were the religious leaders. And they were actually indicative of the greater population. And they do not repent at the preaching of John the Baptist. They heard the message of John. They scoffed at him. They ridiculed him. They were indignant at his message. And they basically said, repent. Why should we do that? Why would I need to repent and turn from sin? We are the religious leaders. We are the teachers of the law. We are already righteous by the law. By keeping the law. The problem is is that nobody follows the law. They were wrong in their own assessment. Only Jesus came and lived perfectly according to God's law. No one else ever does. All of us fall short. And that's why the Bible says for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all sinners. We all need to be saved. We all need to be forgiven. And that's why we are called throughout Scripture to repent and to turn to Christ. And that's the message that John the Baptist was preaching. And that's the message that the religious leaders wanted nothing to do with. They saw themselves as already good enough. The Pharisees rejected John's assessment of themselves. And therefore, they rejected Jesus' assessment as well. We are not sinners. We don't need to repent. They believed that they were the righteous because they were the guardians of the law. They were the ones who had the scriptures and studied them. They went to the schools. They were the experts. They are the ones who wrote it down. They're the ones who taught it to the people. Certainly, if anyone else needs to repent, that's fine. You guys can repent, but not us. We're the religious leaders, and we've got it all together. We don't need to repent. It was an outward excuse and defense by the religious leaders in rejecting John and also rejecting the message of Jesus. But what was the real reason? What was the internal reason? What was the spiritual reason? Well, Luke tells us in verse 30, because they rejected the will of God. Why did they refuse the message? Why did they not repent? Because they rejected the will of God for themselves. They would not submit to what the word of God said. And so they would not be baptized. They would not repent. The Bible places the responsibility squarely upon their shoulders. They would not repent because they rejected the will of God. They heard the word. They refused to believe the word. And therefore, they refused to repent. And that's exactly the same thing that is happening today in this world. Why is not everyone a Christian? They will not obey the word of God. They refuse the word of God. They reject the will of God. And sometimes we in the church can think, well, it's because we're not doing a very good job. And I'm not saying that the church can't get better and that we can't be more effective in communicating and we can't live holier lives. Obviously, we can improve and we need to improve and we need to grow closer to Jesus. But what is the primary reason that people don't come to Christ? It is because they reject the will of God. They do not want to obey it. They love their sin and they're not going to turn from their sin. That's the reason. And that's exactly what we see here as Luke is writing in the day of John the Baptist. And it's foolhardy and it's absurd, isn't it? That is probably the most provable and sustainable pieces of evidence from Scripture to show that the Bible is true. The Bible says that we are sinners and that we have broken the command of God. When I hear that, I think, no joke. I mean, obviously, we've broken the word of God. All of us has done something wrong. Many things wrong. Many times we've lied, we've cheated, we've taken something that wasn't ours. And perhaps we've done it many times and much more. It's obvious. We're sinners. 
We've broken the entire array of laws, haven't we? We haven't just broken God's laws, which is bad enough. We've broken man's laws. We've broken family laws. We've broken our own laws. We've sinned against our own conscience. I mean, the fact that the Bible calls us sinners, to me, it's, it's obviously true. It's correct. That is the one piece of internal evidence that I can measure out and say, yes, the Bible stands true here. It speaks of the condition of my heart like nothing else does in this world. Those who refuse to accept that fact, they're stubborn and they're hard-hearted and they're trusting in their own righteousness and it is really nothing more than a matter of pride. They will not admit that they are sinners. When we've all heard it, when you've talked to people about Christ, what do they say? I am a good person. I'm a good person. Why do they reject? Because of their pride, like the Pharisees, it's their own fault. They reject the will of God and they essentially tell God, no, I will not come to you that way. The Christian says to the world, to the sinner, you need to repent of your sin. You need to receive the forgiveness of God. The world says, no, I'm good enough on my own. I can come my own way. And God says, fine, then I will judge you your own way. You can come to me in two ways. You can come to me by grace through faith, or you can come to me on your own, and I will judge you on your own standard. If you come to me by grace through faith, then your sin has been forgiven. I have judged your sin upon the Lord Jesus Christ. I put it upon him upon that cross. He paid for it. If you come to me on your own, according to your own standard, I will judge you that way. But recognize, and we've got this very false idea of how it's going to go on the day of judgment, because we will all stand before the Lord, and you will stand before him in Christ or outside of Christ, and those outside of Christ have this false assumption that somehow they're going to stand before God and he's going to weigh out their works. And if the scale just tips ever so slightly in favor of the good works, then I'm in. I'm going to heaven, right? We're all good here. You just think, this is crazy. Where are you getting this? This doesn't even work in our own judicial system. Does anybody murder someone today and then go to the judge and say, okay, well, weigh it out, judge. My good works against my bad works and find me innocent. Nobody does that. Yeah, I put the bullet through the guy's skull because he was driving me crazy. I killed him. But you know what? Think about how good I am. You know, I volunteer at the PTA. I have a really nice home. I keep my sidewalk and driveway clean. I blow off all the leaves in the fall. I pay my taxes. I help out at school when I can. I do good things. So just weigh it out, your honor, and find me innocent. No, I find you guilty. The judge drops the gavel and off to prison you go. Same way it's going to be with the Lord. When somebody stands before the Lord in their own righteousness, God will weigh out everything or he'll expose everything and you will be punished for your sin. So much better to come to Christ. Let your sin be forgiven and stand before God in the righteousness of Christ someday. God will judge every motive, every intent, Every action, every word, every thought when you are outside of Christ, come to Christ. But the religious leaders of the day and much of their crowd refused to heed the message of John the Baptist. They refused to listen to Jesus. So that's where we are here in the text. Now, in reference to this rejection of John the Baptist, Jesus says, To what then shall I liken the men of this generation? What shall I liken the men of this generation to? Now, we don't know for a fact because we can't detect the emotion behind what is written. We have the written word, and so we'll have to find out someday. But I believe, 
personally that Jesus is saying this out of frustration here. That he is frustrated. Jesus is exasperated by the nation of Israel. And he marvels at their disbelief. Why will you not believe all of the evidence that I give you and present to you? Aren't you convinced by all that I teach and all that I do that I am from God? They were not because of the hardness of their hearts. Now, Jesus marveled before. Remember, he marveled at the faith of the Roman centurion. Roman centurion, Gentile, enemy of Israel traditionally, he sent some Jewish leaders to go to Jesus. Come to my house and heal my sick servant and slave. While Jesus is on the way, he sends some more friends. Okay, Jesus, just don't come into my house. I'm not worthy. Just speak the word. And then the Roman centurion himself comes to Jesus and says, I am not worthy for you, Lord, to come into my house, but just speak the word and my servant, my slave, will be healed. And Jesus marveled, the Bible says. He was amazed at the faith of this Gentile. And he said, I have not found such faith in all of Israel. He marveled. But here it is exactly the opposite. He is marveling at their lack of faith and their refusal to believe. John the Baptist preached, repentance in the wilderness through asceticism. Now, asceticism means self-denial. It means a life of strict discipline. He refu- they refused to listen to John the Baptist. But then Jesus came along and he preached the same message as John the Baptist, saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, turn from your sin. And they rejected his message as well, even though Jesus did it through engagement. Jesus partook in all of the traditions and the feasts and the festivals of the day. They wouldn't hear him either. And it is my belief here that Jesus is extremely frustrated and distressed at their stubbornness, their hard hearts, and their refusal to believe the truth even when it's laid out right before them so that they might observe it, understand it, and see it. And they refuse to do it. So he says to them, what shall I liken the men of this generation to? What shall I compare them to? And then he says, they're like little children. They're like children. Now, he's not saying that as a compliment here. He is assigning them to a level of immaturity, of spoiled little children who have a wrong heart. Now, Jesus, we know in Scripture, will use children as a positive example. Remember, he says that we need to come to the Lord like a child, with the faith of a child. Now, he's talking about there that when a child, a little child, looks at their father, they implicitly trust and believe daddy. And he's saying that we need to have that same attitude and heart toward our heavenly father, to implicitly trust him, to obey him, to have faith in him in the same way. But here he's using the example of children in the opposite. He is chastising this generation. And when he uses the word generation here, he's talking about the people who are living at this time in Israel. And so Jesus is chastising this generation. And he says they're like children who are sitting in the marketplace. What does that mean? Well, remember, in that day, they didn't have parks and playgrounds like we have today for the kids to go play in. So where did the kids play? I mean, kids have always played. They will always play. Where did they play in that time? They played in the marketplace. The villages and cities of that time, and it's true in many cities around the world today, especially when you go to the third world, The cities or villages will have an open area in the middle 
a marketplace where all the vendors will come and they'll line up their booths and whatever, and they'll sell the produce and the wares for that day. So that if you need something, you go and actually get the stuff that you need to eat for that day. And so as moms would come into the marketplace to shop, to buy what they needed, the kids would go off and play in the marketplace. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. Now, as they're playing, one group of children is playing, and there's another group of children that are not playing here. And the one group of children that are playing are calling out to the other group and saying, come play with us. We've all been there before as kids, all playing, and you like kids to play. Hey, come play with us. So that's the example that Jesus is giving us here in this parable. And he's talking about two common games that children played at this time. They played the wedding game and they played the funeral game. Now, I have three daughters, three little girls. Well, they're not little anymore. Just sent the oldest one off to college. But I grew up in my home with three little girls, one boy. He never played the wedding game, trust me. But the three girls, they all played the wedding game a lot. That was one of their favorite games. I was just looking through the album uh, recently, one of our picture albums, and my third daughter, Caroline, she was only three years old, and I'm looking at this, and her sister, sisters, of course, their older sisters always do this, they'd taken all this laundry of whites, and they had dressed her up as a bride, put this veil on her, and they'd given her some little weeds to hold, and she's in some pink plastic shoes, and she's three, and she's just beaming. She is convinced that she's a real bride, and she's just so happy playing this little wedding game. And so kids even do that today, don't they? We understand what Jesus was saying. 2,000 years ago, they played that game as well. Now, we never had anyone in the home play the funeral game. Our home was a little happier than that. But apparently at that time, there was this funeral game that they had as well. And probably because they were not like today, where when we have funerals, we remove children from the funeral. But in that day, it was very organic. I mean, life was very visible, and when somebody died, they had the funeral right there, and the kids got to see it all. And so kids, in their playtime, will often emulate what they see in the lives of adults. And so they probably played this funeral game as well, because they had seen it growing up, seen the funerals. So the group of children that are playing wedding, they call out to the children who refuse to play, and they say, we played the flute for you, but you did not dance. The time of wedding is the time of celebration where music and dancing happens. And so these kids are playing like a wedding and they're crying out to the children who won't play. We are playing wedding. We played the flute for you, but you would not dance with us. And then the group of children play the funeral game and they call out to those who refuse to play. And they say, we mourned to you, but you did not weep. I mean, a funeral is marked by mourning and weeping, especially in the Middle East in that day. They're very loud, they're very vocal, and they're weeping. And so as the kids are playing this, they're saying, we mourn to you, but you did not come and play with us in weeping. In other words, these children that Jesus is talking about here, these children refuse to play the sad game, and they refuse to play the funeral game. They would not laugh and dance, they would not weep and mourn. The group of children in Jesus' illustration here, they sat in the sideline and they scoffed the whole idea. We're not going to play your happy and lively game. We're not going to play your sad and mournful game. We're not going to play anything that you want to play. And then Jesus gives us the interpretation to the parable. He doesn't always do that, but it's nice when he does. And he says in verse 33, For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine. 
and you say, present tense there, and you say he has a demon. In other words, Jesus was talking to people right in that crowd. There were people right in that crowd who had said that, and he has a demon about John the Baptist. You can just imagine that kind of dialogue. Have you been out to hear the prophet preaching out at the Jordan River and baptizing people? Oh, yes, I've been out there. I've seen that madman. I think he's a demoniac. Really? Oh, yeah, only a demoniac would live like that. See, John the Baptist came and lived a very strict life of self-denial. He was out in the wilderness. He wore camel hair. He ate wild honey and locusts. That's the kind of guy that he was. That's what God had called him to. He denied the pleasures of the flesh. He was dedicated to, to preaching and to teaching, to calling people to repentance and baptizing them in the Jordan River. He did not eat fancy food. He did not drink wine. You were never going to see John the Baptist at a party at that day. He was not going to be in that year's who's who of Jerusalem. He didn't hang out with a sophisticated crowd. He was out in the wilderness, denying himself, living in very difficult situation and circumstances. John the Baptist faithfully delivered the truth of God. But that generation denied the truth that John delivered. And they said, the guy has a demon. He's crazy. Don't listen to him. It was an outward excuse. But inwardly, it was because the hardness of heart. They refused to receive the word of God. And they refused to repent of their sin. The bottom line. And then Jesus says in verse 34, the son of man. Now this is contrast. So John the Baptist was out in the wilderness denying himself. Now he gives a contrast in verse 34. The son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look, a glutton and a wine bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now Jesus there refers to himself as the son of man. That was one of his favorite titles to use, the son of man. It's a messianic title from the book of Daniel, and he uses it to speak of himself. Not only, of course, is he the Messiah, but it gives us a good contrast that God became a man. The Son of God became the Son of Man to live among us, to be one of us, and ultimately to die for us. So he uses that title. And Jesus says that he preached the same message of John. He commanded the people to repent. But Jesus did it in engaging the culture, didn't he? Jesus was a partaker in the culture. Jesus lived as a natural, normal Jewish man. He didn't sin like a natural, normal Jewish man, but Jesus was one of the regular guys, so to speak, in just his appearance and how he carried himself and how he conducted himself. No sin in his life, obviously, he's the son of God, but there was not some glow shining on Jesus quite often when you see that Reformation, Renaissance art time frame. They'll point Jesus with this like glowing halo on him. Not at all. Jesus appeared as a normal guy. He lived as a normal guy without sin. And so Jesus went to weddings and he went to funerals. He attended feasts. He ate and he drank with the regular people. And quite often Jesus sat down with sinners, with harlots and tax collectors. And he explained when he did the kingdom of God and he called them to repentance. But Jesus delivered the truth of God. However, that generation denied the truth that Jesus was giving. And he said, they said of Jesus, the guy's a glutton. He's a drunk. He's a wine-bibber. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Don't have anything to do with him either. It was 
Just like with John the Baptist, an outward excuse. Because their hearts were hard and they would not repent of their sin. They weren't going to listen to John because he was a crazy man in the wilderness. They weren't going to listen to Jesus because he was a glutton and a wine-bibber. And Jesus then likens them to spoiled children. Nothing is going to please you, is it? God can't please you. You're not going to play the happy game. You're not going to play the sad game. You're not going to play the wedding game. You're not going to play the funeral game. You're not going to listen to John the Baptist who came and denied his flesh and lived out in the wilderness. You said, oh, he's a demoniac. But when I came and I engaged the culture and I went to your funerals and your weddings and I partook in all of the Jewish traditions, you're not going to listen to me either. Just hardness of heart. They would not repent. They always have an excuse of why they will not believe the word and the command of God. You see, the people at that time had established these biased categories of people. These categories that served as a convenient excuse of why they would not, they could not believe. John the Baptist, we can't believe him. He's a crazy man out in the wilderness. And he doesn't good understand good social etiquette. I mean, the guy's got locust breath. How can you listen to him? Jesus, oh, him neither. I mean, come on, he's a, he eats and drinks with sinners. I mean, he enjoys himself too readily. He goes to all the parties of the day. Oh, he's just too much. You can't listen to him either. And it's interesting that 2,000 years later, nothing's changed, has it? The excuses are exactly the same. As people use the same means and the same methods to turn away from the word of God and to reject it for themselves. They won't have it. And they've always got a handy excuse, don't they? How many times have you heard? And you've heard it just like I have. How many times have you heard someone say, well, I'm not going to go to that church because there's just a bunch of hypocrites in that church. You know, those hypocrites, I wouldn't go there. Now, hypocrisy is bad. Hypocrisy does a lot of damage to the body of Christ. It does a lot of damage to the gospel, to be sure. Hypocrisy is a very dangerous sin. But do people use that excuse with other institutions? Have you ever heard someone say that one time about a hospital? I'm not going to go to that hospital. Man, a bunch of hypocrites there. Those doctors, you know, they're always saying you shouldn't smoke. But I saw a doctor smoking the other day. Guy's a hypocrite. So I'm never going to that hospital. Oh, that nurse, you know, those nurses, they're always talking about nutrition and eating right. I saw a nurse that was overweight. She's, she's not eating right. She's obviously a hypocrite. So I've just rejected all modern medicine. I have never heard that, not one time in my entire life. Nobody rejects hospitals because they see a hypocritic doctor or a nurse. How about a pharmacist? Do they say the same thing? Oh, those pharmacists, you know what? I saw one that had high blood pressure. And I know they've got medication to lower your blood pressure. That guy's not taking his medicine, that hypocrite. I'm going to reject all that modern medicine. Nobody does that. Nobody says that. You see, the things of value always have counterfeits. Things of value always have counterfeits. Do people reject money because they were passed a counterfeit bill at one time or another? I went into that convenience store and they gave me back some change and they slipped me a fake 10. I'm never using money again. I've just had enough of it. Bunch of counterfeiters and hip, hypocrites out there. 
From now on, when I go into the store, I'm bringing my chickens and my goats and my sheep, and I'm just going to barter. I reject money completely. Nobody says that, do they? You see, the counterfeiters, they don't counterfeit the counterfeit. They always counterfeit what is real. And sadly, yes, there are hypocrites, and there are counterfeits in the church, but that's no valid excuse from the world. The fact that there are hypocrites and counterfeiters only tells you and testifies that there is something real behind it, that they are imitating in a false way what is real, and that there is something of value behind them. We all know that. No excuse to reject the gospel of Christ. It's nothing more than a convenient excuse. It's just like we see here in the day of Jesus. I'm not going to play with you no matter what you do. You cannot satisfy me. You give me the wedding game, the happy game, or the funeral, the sad game, I will not play. It's a convenient excuse to camouflage the truth, to hide their hard heart, the fact that they love sin and they will not repent. It is a convenient excuse to cover over the sin of pride. I'm good enough to come to God on my own terms, and I don't need to go through Jesus. I'm fine the way that I am. And then Jesus makes a very heady statement here. Statement that sort of makes us sit back and think for a moment. He says in verse 35, but wisdom is justified by all of her children. Wisdom is justified by all her children. Now the Greek word that he uses there for justified is dikai oo, and it means to be justified, to be vindicated, to be declared righteous. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 37, For by your words you will be justified. That's the same word there. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And here, Jesus gives this illustration of children, these spoiled children. They will not play with the others under any circumstances. And he's making a direct comparison to the nation of Israel, to that generation at that time. And it's not flattering, and it's not complimentary, and Jesus rebukes them for it. Now think about that. As a side note, let me mention this. Jesus rebukes people. There's this modern conception of Jesus going around now that Jesus always just made people feel good and pandered to their emotions. And that's what we as Christians ought to do today. We ought to make everybody feel good because that's what it's like to be like Jesus. Not at all. Jesus rebuked people. He rebuked his generation He rebuked the religious leaders. He rebuked individuals. There is a time and there is a place, even in love, to rebuke sin. There's this idea of love, especially in our modern time, that love just makes people feel good, and that's it. If you really love someone, you're always going to make them feel good. And you're never going to say anything to hurt their feelings. And if they are living in sin, you're going to cover it over, paper over it, excuse it, turn away from it, Don't ever take it on directly. But that's not true love. True love is doing what is best for the other person spiritually. And Jesus, in love, rebukes sin. And there is a place and there is a time for us as Christians to rebuke sin. That's the problem we're having right now in this whole rise of homosexuality in our current time. The critics, and it's gotten into the church, and many of the church, many Christians feel this way, that we as Christians should always make them feel good. I keep hearing this from 
these activist homosexuals were saying, if you were really like Jesus, if you guys really loved people, you wouldn't make us feel bad. You'd be more tolerant and understanding. No, wait a second. Jesus rebuked sin. There is a place and there is a time for us to stand up in love and rebuke sin. In fact, that's why we are rebuking their sin, because we love them and we want them to know what is right, what is good, and to turn away from their sin and to be saved. I don't care if it's popular or not. That's the truth. What Jesus did. He rebukes their sin. And he rebukes this generation. And he sums up his illustration by saying this. But wisdom is justified by all her children. Wisdom is justified by all her children. And it begs the question, what does he mean when he uses the word children there? What's he talking about? How is he using that word? Well, children, in the very literal sense, are the product of the union between a man and a woman. We know that. Children are the fruit of the womb. Children are our heritage. Children are our offspring. And the character of children are the product of the home. What the character of the children are comes from the home. It speaks of the environment and the training and the care of the family and the culture and the nation. And that's why, of course, when we look at American children today... And I'm talking about the statistics across the board. You know that the United States is not a healthy place. We're not a healthy culture. We're not a healthy nation. Because our children are not healthy. We just look at the level of crime. The level of violence. The level of disrespect and apathy and immorality and indecent acts going on with our children. I just read a news story this last week that three teens were arrested in Massachusetts at a sports camp for sexually assaulting three other younger teens. And the details are so grotesque, I can't even talk about it from the pulpit. Not even going to go there. Moms and dads drop their kids off at a sports camp in Massachusetts to go to learn how to play soccer and to do it better. And three, and this is male on male, three older teens sexually assaulted three younger teens. You just think, how did we get here? This is perverse. This is depraved. Our children are becoming depraved not healthy. But you can analyze something by what it produces, can't you? And that's what Jesus is talking about. When Jesus says the wisdom is justified by her children, he is saying that the wisdom of the people, or the wisdom of that generation, is justified by what it produces. It's justified by its offspring. It is justified by what comes out of it. And that's what Jesus is saying here very important lesson for us as Christians, and we need to understand it, because there are a lot of voices calling out to us today, aren't there? There are leaders, there are politicians, there are systems, there are ministries, there are professors, there are philosophies, there are pastors, there are churches, and they're all claiming to be wise and saying, come, follow us, be one of ours, become one of our disciples. But we have to, as Christians, have the ability to look at the person, or to look at that system, to see what it produces, and then to come to a right conclusion. What is coming out of that system? What is coming out of that person? And then to be discerning about it. God calls us to be discerning. So tremendous gift and quality that the Lord wants for us. To have discernment. It's very close, of course, to that statement that Jesus made. You can know the tree by its fruit. You can look at the fruit coming off of the tree and you can make a correct judgment about the tree. 
A bad tree bears bad fruit and a good tree bears good fruit. You can know that, Jesus says. So wisdom is justified by her children. You can look and see what a system or a person is producing and then you can come to a proper conclusion. The nation of Israel, by and large, had rejected John the Baptist. They had rejected Jesus. They were the spoiled children in Jesus' illustration who would not repent. And Jesus is telling the people here, look and see what is being produced. And if it is folly, then that person or that system is foolish and you are to walk away from it. You are to reject it out of hand. That's our call as Christians as well. Jesus is telling that crowd, look at your religious leaders. Look at the religion that they've created. This is certainly what, not what God intended. Look at their lives, see what comes out of it, and make a discerning decision. You see, the religious leaders of this time were cruel. There was no mercy or no love of the Lord or the people. They were proud. They were arrogant. They were self-serving. They were taking care of number one. They made the law of God impossible to follow as they added more and more traditions to the law so that it became absolutely impossible. And they just weighted the people down with this crushing burden on them as they tried to serve the Lord. They were kind of religiously sadistic as they gained pleasure from other people's spiritual misery. And Jesus says, take a look at it. Jesus is telling the crowd, then, in contrast, consider the ministry of John the Baptist and consider my ministry. Consider what you see coming out of what we're doing. We love the people. We glorify God. We obey the scriptures. We call people to repent of their sin. Now make a wise choice. Who are you going to follow? Which path will you go down? Wisdom is justified by her children, by what it produces. It's true today, isn't it? It's exactly true today. The definition of wisdom is the right and proper application of knowledge. The right and proper application of knowledge. I mean, we've all met people who are brilliant, but they're not wise, right? They've got incredible minds. They can hold all kinds of information. They can remember facts, just go over it one time, meet those people in college. You don't like them. You know, they read a book, they just kind of peruse it, and they've got it. They understand it. But so often, those people are not wise. They can hold a tremendous amount of information in their minds, but they don't know how to apply it. They're not wise. True wisdom. True wisdom is the correct and right application of knowledge, and it is always going to honor the Lord as you live in obedience to him. That's where true wisdom will take you. And that's why the Bible speaks so much about wisdom. Because God ultimately is the only one who is wise. He is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He's the one that holds our eternal destiny in his hands. That's why Paul closed the book of Romans, and he said in Romans 16, 27, to God alone wise. Who's the only one that's wise ultimately in this universe? God. To God alone wise, he says. Wisdom comes from him. He is the creator and sustainer of all wisdom, and all wisdom, therefore, is found in him. So, true wisdom, when we find it among men, find it among ourselves, True wisdom, and there's no exception to this, true wisdom will always glorify God as it lives in obedience and honor to the word of God. You can hold on to that one. 
I mean, quite often we'll talk about people being wise, and I do this as well. It's how we use the English language. I'll say, well, that guy's wise with his money. That guy's wise with his time, or she's wise with her resources. But ultimate wisdom is always going to honor and obey the Lord and live for his glory. That's true wisdom. That's real wisdom. And therefore, wisdom among men is going to produce, if we have true wisdom, the wisdom of God among men is going to produce true repentance from sin, and it's going to receive the forgiveness of God. True wisdom from God in men always leads to salvation, and it glorifies God, and it lives to obey and honor his word. That is always true. Always true. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.15, and that from childhood you have known, so Paul was writing right to Timothy, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Jesus Christ. What makes you wise to salvation? The scriptures do. And what is true wisdom? It leads to salvation, to obedience to the Lord. Jesus witnessed this generation rejecting the truth. They rejected John the Baptist. They rejected the ministry of Christ. They would not receive his testimony. They wanted to follow their own systems. They wanted to follow the religious leaders. They wanted to follow Herod. They wanted to follow their own traditions. They wanted to follow their flesh, whatever it was. The, re- the reasons that they did not want to follow John the Baptist or obey the word of God covered the spectrum just like they do today. They were religious le- reasons. They were political reasons. They were personal reasons. They were cult- cultural reasons. Why? I cannot obey the word of God. And so Jesus here, in appealing to the mind, I love it. Yes, Jesus appeals to our minds. So often you'll hear critics say, oh yeah, when you become a Christian, you just check out Close the door of your mind. You've now become closed-minded. Don't use your mind. Just make that crazy leap of faith. Not at all. Jesus appeals to our minds, and he says, look at the evidence and reason this out. Wisdom is proved. It is justified. It is vindicated by its children, by what it produces. Jesus is saying, look at the path that you're on. Look at who you're following. Who are your guides? Who are your leaders? Who are your teachers? Where are they leading you? And what is the path that they are taking you on? And where does it end up? Look down that road and see what it produces. And if you're on that path, you're going to wind up there as well. That same question needs to be asked today. And I would ask you who are young here today. Those of you who are young. Who are your heroes? Who are your heroes? Are your parents your heroes? Somebody in the church your hero? Somebody from church history? One of your heroes? Somebody from the word of God? Who are your heroes? Check your heart right now. Are your heroes in the word of God or are your heroes in Hollywood, in the music industry, or on the field of sports? Now, I am not saying that it's wrong to admire someone in those areas. I mean, we all can look at someone that plays a great tennis game, an incredible tennis game. We can admire his ability and his unique gifts. You can look at someone who is a great actor, and you can certainly appreciate the fact that he is very talented in his ability to act. Or you can look at someone who has the gift of of music, and they, they are tremendous at it, and you can appreciate that talent. I'm not saying that's wrong at all, but I'm saying who are your heroes? Who do you truly admire in the depth of your soul? 
And where are those heroes taking you? Are they taking you down the path of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are they taking you down the path of humanism further and further into self-righteousness and sin? Who are your heroes? Though there are many talented people in Hollywood and in the music industry and in the world of sports, by and large, they are not going to take you to Jesus. They're going to take you to perdition. They're going to take you to destruction. Be careful who we admire. Be careful, young person, who you emulate. Jesus is saying wisdom is justified by our children. And most of what you see coming out of Hollywood, the entertainment industry in our nation is garbage, isn't it? It's absolute garbage. And if you spend any amount of time here, you know that I don't have many good things to say about Hollywood. It's all garbage. Don't make those people your heroes. Now, for those of you who are not young here, and I'll let you determine where you fall on that line. If you're not young, what have you dedicated your life to? Where is your hope? What system and worldview have you embraced? And where has that been taking you? And where are others on that path going? Because you need to analyze it and you need to understand it. And you need to make a very wise decision here. Don't think for an instance that you can follow a worldly system or a worldly philosophy and not pay a price for it. You will pay an extremely high price for walking on that path. Don't think that you can serve two masters. You cannot. You cannot serve the world and then come in here on a Sunday morning and say, well, I'll serve Jesus as well. And I'll try to make the two work. Not at all. The Bible is very clear on that. You're only going to serve one of the masters. You will love the one and you will hate the other. You cannot try to balance both. And all of us, young and old alike, we need to make a choice. We need to serve the Lord. And will we serve the Lord wholeheartedly and completely? Or will we serve the gods of this world? And if you choose another God, besides the Lord God, I would beg you, I would beg you, look at the children that it produces. Look what comes out of it. Look at the fruit of its womb. Look at what it is birthing and producing. And make a wise decision. You see, wisdom is justified by our children. And true wisdom is going to lead you to salvation, to glorify God and to live in obedience to his word. Anything apart from that is not wisdom. The person or the system that that you're following, if they are not glorifying God, if they are not obeying the word of God, then jump off of that path and do not walk down that road any longer. You see, the world is full of error and deception and false teaching and lust. And basically, it's all idolatry, isn't it? It's just idolatry. And we can call it all these different things, but it's just idolatry. It's getting you to worship something else that is not Christ. Don't esteem it. Don't follow it. Don't live after it. Don't even let it into your home. Dads, this is where you step up. Do not let it into your home. Draw the line there. And if you have to throw your TV or computer out the window, then do it. Just say, look out below. Here it comes. Not my TV or computer. I mean, come on. Those are essential to life in America in the 21st century. Not if it's causing you to stumble. Not if it's causing you to live in sin. Not if it's causing you to chase after other gods. No, it's not. Get rid of these things. Yeah, but that could affect my job. Well, then quit your job. Quit my job. If your job is causing you to stumble and living apart from the Lord, then yes, new occupation for you. 
You need to follow the Lord Jesus Christ wholeheartedly and completely. And don't let anything cloud that message. Don't let anything get in the way of that. It may mean that you make some very serious choices in your life. You may need to make different entertainment choices. You may need to make different political choices, different educational choices, different recreational choices, different occupational choices. Whatever it is, get rid of anything and everything that would hinder you from living completely for the Lord Jesus Christ with an undivided heart. True wisdom is godly wisdom. The Proverbs say this in Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Anything or anyone that does not subscribe to the fear of the Lord, that does not glorify the Lord, that does not live in obedience to His Word, don't be loyal to those things. They are not wise. They are producing what is bad. Get off of that path. That's what Jesus is telling us here. We need to serve the Lord, and we need to serve the Lord wholeheartedly. You know, just like I do, that the days are growing darker and more and more wicked. Make sure that you choose what is wise. Get on that right path, the path of righteousness. Look down the road, see what it produces, and make a wise determination. And if it doesn't produce godliness, get off. And if it does, stay on, hold on tight by the power of God, and live completely for him. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together. And let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Jesus, thank you for these these sharp things that you said. Yes, Jesus, you did rebuke. Even out of love, you rebuked. And Father, we take the rebuke to our own lives and we use it to, to examine ourselves and to challenge ourselves, Lord. Are we living in a way that is wise before you? Are we pleasing you? Are we living for you? Are we glorifying you? Lord, have we allowed any sort of idolatry to come into our heart? And I would pray for us, Lord, as a congregation, that we would not allow any sort of of compromise into our minds, into our daily practice, into our homes. They would pull or take us away from you, Lord, but that we would consecrate ourselves and consecrate our families and consecrate this church to live wholeheartedly and completely for you. And Lord, I pray for the dads of this congregation, that they would step up and take that role of leadership, that they would purify their families and to make sure that there is nothing coming into the home it would draw them or the children away from you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you have given us. Thank you for your gift of salvation. Thank you for the gift of everlasting life. And Jesus, I pray that you would just bless this church, that it would be a blessed congregation, and that we would then use all of that blessing to turn back to you and to say thank you, Lord. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for life. And thank you for everlasting life. In Jesus' name, amen. 